Please remember, the information in our podcast could be a trigger for some people. And if you or someone you know has been affected by sexual abuse, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre 24-hour helpline is 1-800-77-8888. Hello, I'm Joyce. I'm June. And I'm Paula. We're the Cabinet Sisters and we'd like to welcome you to our series of Count Me In podcasts where we continue to shine a light on childhood sexual abuse and its impacts. In today's podcast, we'll be speaking to Leona O'Callaghan, founder of Haven Hope, a voluntary organisation, opened in November 2019 and based in Limerick, dealing with late night suicide prevention. Leona is a survivor of childhood sexual abuse and in November 2018, her rapist received an 18 year sentence. Leona waived her anonymity in order to name her abuser. She's an advocate for survivors' rights and has spoken before the Bar Council Conference, Laws and Effects, and organised several awareness raising events. In 2018, she set up Survivor Support Anonymous, a 12-step peer-led programme to help survivors recover from their trauma. And if that isn't enough to be getting along with, Leona is also studying accountancy and raising three children. Right, Leona. Yeah, you're not busy at all, eh? I mean, we have found that most victims or people who advocate or work in this area tend to be doing a lot of stuff. They tend to be passionate about injustice, having come out the other end of it themselves. And although your profile there looks fairly full, it certainly has the one thread running through it, and that is the bottom line, the abuse that started it off. So would you like to start us off by talking about your most recent venture, which was Haven Hub? Yeah, I'm based in Limerick and we have also a huge problem with suicide and attempted suicide. So we'd have twice the national average rate than a lot of other places. There was a week there where I think four people had gone into the river, um, all very, very young. And I think it got to everybody in Limerick. It was just so such a sad week. I suppose because of my own history then, I, was, I, I had three serious suicide attempts. The last one would have been four and a half years ago. Around the time that I had come forward against my abuser, um, I had been struggling with a complex PTSD. I had been struggling with disassociation, severe depression. And then the flashbacks and, and, and everything that comes with that started to happen. It just got too much and I started to lose hope. I couldn't function like I once did, couldn't go to work and I'd always worked. Um, I started failing exams and I'd never failed exams because of the, the panic attacks that I was having where they were so bad. I could literally, I, I could wet myself during some of them. So I couldn't mind my kids on my own because they were small and it wasn't fair on them. So suddenly I felt absolutely useless. On one of those occasions, I went into the river and I had taken a serious overdose that night as well. So I was lucky. I got to St. Pat's. St. Pat's are, were amazing. I got a lot of help in there. I did DBT and, and I learned some new skills to keep myself safe. The other side of that then is how sad it is when you see people that don't get that second chance, that attempt the very same thing I did, uh, don't get the opportunity to turn it around. I reached out to a lot of the suicide prevention crowds and mental health crowds and my own survivors group. We don't really have a collaborated approach and we're all screaming in different directions. Can we come together? Can we, can we all sit around the same table? About 22 organisations are now coming around the table once a month. 
one of the things that kind of come up is is the lack of after hour support after six o'clock at night there's really very very little support and help and the peak time for suicide is 11 o'clock so in Limerick the only place to go after say 10 o'clock at night when the Samaritans left would be A&E and without saying anything bad about A&E they have the highest rate in Ireland for people that attempt suicide and self-harm and then get discharged. So they have 72% of the people that turn up there saying, I wanted to die, or various different circumstances, would then end up just getting discharged. And then on top of that, 13% were leaving without even being seen. So if they're feeling suicidal again, they're less likely to reach out for that help. So the Haven Hub then, we open at eight o'clock at night and we stay open until half three in the morning. I have an amazing committee with me, it's not just myself. We have over 40 volunteers and that come in and sit down and people in their lowest moments really and sit with them in their pain. Now we're actually doing a phone service because of the epidemic. So it's six o'clock at night until half three in the morning. For some people, they just want to talk. They're not necessarily suicidal. We're there to hear your story. And if you are suicidal, to help you come up with a safety plan, to keep yourself safe enough to link in with other supports. But that's what the Haven Hub is about. Very passionate about it because I feel so lucky that I got that chance. I was rescued when I had lost that hope, you know. Now, have you seen uh, an increase in calls at this time? At the very beginning, we got a few calls. Then it seemed to go very quiet. And I think after the announcement that it was going to go on for that little bit longer, then people that were really struggling started to lose rationality and stuff. So we have seen an increase now in the people that are ringing us and some of the same people ringing back, unfortunately. Um, all sorts of violence has gone up there's frustration there and the perpetrators of domestic violence know that the other person isn't going anywhere and I have had some calls that were really really hard people don't have the same type of supports they would have had before this right your own abuse yeah for what were you like before it and then what happened after abuse started when I was around I can't actually remember was it 11 or 12 or it was six past and he whacker was his name and he used to be a really good friend of my cousin who died and my cousin was more like my brother because he grew up with us in our in our house it was the first time I'd experienced death I really missed him it was a very sudden death whacker was his best friend nowadays I think if somebody in their adulthood would kind of hang around with a group of kids they'd be kind of looked at but back then nobody seemed to to really notice that he joined our company and stuff. And he used to talk about my cousin Brendan a lot. And that's how I suppose, you know, he got into my mind as such. They're very clever. He talked to me about Brendan. I'd love to hear stories about Brendan. So he started to tell me that Brendan's spirit was worried about me, asked him to look after me and asked him to protect me. And that he was worried every time I left his company because he felt something bad was going to happen to me. Now, obviously, looking back as an adult, I know that that's part of the grooming process and, and all of that. But at the time, I, I saw no motive as to why he'd say that. And he also started, and like I say, he started hanging around at the company of, of me and my friend. I was the youngest in that group. My, my older sister was also in the group. He started telling me what people were saying behind my back. Back then, you cared about what your friends were saying and that I needed to be wide of certain people. I really need to be wide of them. He started telling me things like my sister's soul went black every time she was in my company. And that she had a huge jealousy problem with me and I needed to be very careful of her. He said that he met my parents and that he felt very sorry for me because my parents were talking about it. Like they had three children that were amazing and were turned out fine. But tell me what they said. Now now I know that the stuff he was saying, he was making up a lot, a lot of it. But he really isolated me from the very people that, that were in my life. And he had me scared out of my wits. So I, I need to call down Brenton Spirit to, 
watch over you. And at the time, I felt there was no motive in, in what he was saying. Why else would you be saying it unless it's true? And he was an adult. So I looked up to him and he was a neighbor. And like I say, he was my cousin's best friend. So a lot of the time while he worked on me in my mind, he never came near me. He didn't touch me. Um, he just, you know, groomed me to the point where I isolated myself away from everybody. I trusted nobody. I felt everybody hated me. Then he started to tell me that he needed to stop talking to me. And he asked me if I knew the difference between being in love and loving someone. At that age, it got awkward. And then eventually he, he sexually assaulted me for the first time. And then it went on to numerous attempts. A lot of the time it was in a graveyard. So he bought me a dog and he'd tell me to bring the dog for a walk in the graveyard. The first two times he held me down. And it was very scary, very eerie and stuff. He was a very evil man. So say the first time it happened, I just remember being completely traumatized the following couple of days. And when he saw me, he gave out to me because he had to get his jacket cleaned. Because he put his jacket on the grave and <coughs> he had lead. So yeah, he told me how much it was to get the jacket cleaned. <laughs> very inconsiderate of me there, yeah. Yeah, I think it was eight pounds. I think I still remember the eight pounds figure. He was just such an evil man. And until I was about 14, the, the abuse continued. When I was about 14, then he was he locked away. Afraid to something nothing to do with kids or anything. When that happened, then my friends at the time were starting to have their own relationships and stuff like that. And, and just before he started to come out, I started to get really nervous because obviously the abuse itself was very physically painful and yet I still cared about him I still admired him I still wanted his approval it gotten into my mind to a degree that I'll never fully understand it was something that I felt very responsible for because I didn't always say no and I felt as if it was the two of us that had done wrong in it um, and that we had both had equal blame and nobody else knew so coming down the stairs and pretended as if nothing had happened to my parents would have been very, very hard to go back and, and have that double life where you're trying to be the regular child, but this horrible thing keeps happening by somebody that has really messed up your mind, you know? So I told a teacher when I was about 14, and the teacher told my parents, and it stopped, thank God. Um, there was 68 counts. I pled guilty, I think, to five counts. I find it interesting that you actually call him your rapist all the time, and not your abuser. Mm. And I actually think you, your terminology is correct, but it's unusual. Because yeah. most people who have had ongoing abuse don't use the term rapist. They'll say my abuser because it was long. Like it wasn't a yeah. one-off. So is that deliberate yeah, on your side? To that, actually. You're right, yeah. I think one of the things that bothers me, and it still happens, and people don't people don't mean it, but when they, if people are ever brave enough, and, and like that, I, I have no problem talking about it now. Um, I would have for the first, Jesus, until such times I got a lot of help. But what does bother me is when they call it sex. Even in court, they call it sex. And now that I'm an adult, you know, sex is an amazing thing. It can be an amazing thing with two consenting adults. Rape is very different. Mm -hmm. And even on times when I didn't say no, obviously each and every one of those times I was a child. So I think it's probably a little bit of that in that sense. And the fact that that, that it was never sex. For a long time, that's what I believed it was. I believed it was an inappropriate relationship that I was responsible for as well. I never fully accepted it was sexual assault and accepted that it was rape. I, I very much would have thought that no, I didn't say no those times, but they weren't right. So it was a distinction in my mind that didn't come naturally to me, I suppose. So now, in order to kind of remind myself that that's what it is, I, I do tend to use that word because that is what it was. I read your victim impact statement. It's very good. How long did it take you to write that? One night, would you believe? Jesus. Until, yeah, I, I wrote that one night and I hadn't looked at it again until I needed to read it. When I started to write it before first time getting really bad flashbacks and panic attacks 
and my child had to had to ring an ambulance. And then one night I just had a night where I just, and I knew I wasn't going to sleep anyway, and I just said I'm just going to do it now. I got yeah. huge healing, huge healing from looking him in the eye and saying what I had to say to him. And no other process could have given me that. That's you know? so true. I, I am very grateful to the legal system for that. Yeah. Um, for the ability to look him in the eye and say what you did was never okay. Oh, I tell you, yeah, it's, it was powerful. And also, you shone a light on the issue of secondary victims and how the impact of what he did goes through generations, especially if it's not picked up on and tr- treated. You know, you mentioned your family, your siblings, your parents, your children, your marriages. Do you believe that your two relationships broke down because of this? I think it has a lot to do with it. Yeah, I do. I think that, especially the last marriage, the first time I got married, I was only 19. I was a kid and we were just, we were we were so young. The second time, I do think the stress of me being so unwell and the effect that had on my children because they deserved a mother who had it together and they deserved a mother who was stable and I couldn't give them that. And I, I don't blame myself anymore for it, but I do acknowledge it. It caused so much pain for them right, to have a mum in and out of hospital. One of those Christmases had gone into the river on the 23rd of December. And they open their presence in a psych unit. The day I went into the river, it's him I wrote to. Can't do it anymore and I can't take memories. And on another occasion, my attempt was in that graveyard. I very, very nearly gave my children a pain. Don't get me wrong, they actually they have pain that you know they'll never fully recover from already. They had to learn about something that was too heavy for their shoulders. My choice and anonymity, my children are the only ones I listen to. So I didn't ask anybody else, but I sat with them. Like at the time, my, my son, so he would have been about 10, and I had to sit with him because I didn't know what he knew and what he didn't. I knew that if I waved my anonymity, he would read this on a paper somewhere, and I didn't want it to be when he was on his own. That's a conversation I never wanted to have with a 10-year-old little boy. When I sat with him, and I had always just said that I'd been beaten up, um, when I sat with him then and I tried to kind of say what actually happened, he stopped me in my tracks and said, oh, mom, I know he raped you. And I had no idea he knew that. And I, I sat with him and I said, lads, if I if I talk about this and if I wave my anonymity, I don't know how much media will, will cover, but they'll know my name and people might say it to you and whatever. And every one of my children, without a second thought, sat and said, no, we want you to name him. He has hurt you. He has caused you this pain. We want him named. It comes at a cost. And they did get affected and they continue to get affected by it. But they wanted him to not ever return to him. And that was fine to, I suppose, naming him as well is so that people would know exactly who he is because I wasn't the first um, and he'd never been named. Prior to you being abused, would you say you were vulnerable and that's why you were easy pickings? Yeah, before I was abused, I, I would have been very chirpy. I would have been quite a bubbly kid. I would have been very naive and trustworthy. My mum talks about how I used to sing my whole way down to school and back. Kind of confident. I was vulnerable in the sense of I had a huge longing, I suppose, to be accepted and loved, and I was very, very sensitive. And I think the vulnerability came with the experience of the death of my cousin. I was a happy kid. I was. Um, I wasn't troubled. I became a very unhappy kid very, very quickly. I became a very troublesome kid. I wasn't a likable person for a lot of the time when I was in that amount of pain. That's the thing with whether it's depression or whether it's dealing with abuse. We can become very unlikable. We we're angry, and it's okay. And that's okay looking back. But um, I don't know. I was never. I was never unlikable. <laughs> She's still in that phase, Leona. <laughs> I certainly was. With the marriages breaking down, there were times there where I know, even when, say when it came to intimacy, I was finally able to make love to my husband without my skin crawling, and it would go okay. I'd wake up the next day and I'd be really angry at him. 
and he done no wrong and yeah. I would know how to control that. People have a perception that children who get abused are all from dysfunctional families, there's, always, there's a reason why they get chosen and I think your case highlights the fact that one thing could happen in a child's life that knocks them off kilter, like the death of your cousin, which makes you more vulnerable to abuse. Absolutely. Like picking up those cues. So, Paul, as you mentioned, it would have been really important to be liked and accepted. I mean, that was the norm for everybody. You know, they could have easily latched onto that as well. An abuser only needed to half an inch to get going. You were saying somebody told your mother and then it stopped. Yeah, but that's usually where your hell begins. Yeah, I, I told the teacher and he left Limerick fairly shortly after that. And I just kind of moved on as best I could, didn't talk about it, was very ashamed of it. That's where I learned my skill of keeping myself busy. I moved out of home quite early. I was living on my own. I was paying my own rent and still going to school, pretending I was still living at home so that they wouldn't go contact on social services or anything. And I just became very busy. And then I got pregnant in my final year of school. And I, I actually got the highest in my school year. I got 515 points. I was so thrilled. But I just kept myself so busy with the study and everything else that I just pushed it all away. And that worked for a while. It worked for a long time, actually. And then a time came in my life where I was actually happy. And I think that's what people don't realize. They say, well, Jesus, after all these years, is she not over it yet, you know? I had never dealt with it. And so I got to a place where I was finally content. So suddenly he was living around the corner from where I worked. I was seeing him in the park. I saw him talking to a child. I rang the guards. The guards said, Patrina, come forward. There's nothing we can do. I confronted him. I said, I'll get you jail if you, if you don't leave. I turned up at his mother's house and I asked her to, to get him out of Limerick. And she had no say over it. Like, you know. And then I finally came forward when I realized I can't live and watch him walk the streets. And I know that he's going to do this to somebody else. You know, I didn't know at the time there was another girl. She was only six and there was another girl who had been eight. And their cases were ongoing at the time as well. So I was the third then to come forward. That helped me. And I don't mean it like, as a, of course, you don't want to see other people in pain. But for me, it had always been about me and him for so long. And I had played a huge part in it that when I saw how irrelevant actually I was and how many others there was, it became more about him. I, I stopped judging the way I was back then. I stopped kicking myself for not saying no, for not telling sooner. Because when I went to those teachers, I didn't say it was me. I said that it was a friend and I didn't say that his age or anything. And they copped it straight away. And if it wasn't for that, I don't know how long it would have went on. You you're brilliant it. now, honest to God. I know exactly what you're talking about. An awful lot of what you're saying, we can totally relate to because we've had the nearly identical experience that although externally the experience is completely different, the impacts are very similar. And so, yeah, I just hope you know how amazing you are and how courageous you are, and how you have to break in that entire cycle of abuse, how much more damage he could have done left alone. And just in yeah. your life, and as you said, you're only one of the people abused, the wide and vast impact that has had just over your family. And now imagine all those other people. And you don't know how many untold others that haven't come forward. And really to encourage other people to hear the nitty gritty of it, like the difficulty calling it rape instead of sex. Yeah. And the difficulty thinking it's all about you. And why did he choose me out of all of those other people? And then later the realisation that actually it had nothing to do with you. It was all yeah. to do with him. All those pieces of the puzzle get only get put together when you hear other people and realise, I'm not a bad person. You give yourself enough headspace then to make your own come to your own conclusions about your own abuse. So it's vitally important that we talk about this, even though it is quite uncomfortable 
well, not for me, <laughs> but for some people it can be uncomfortable to listen to, but I think we have to challenge that. It's, it's like anything else, when you know that you're not on your own and you can read something else, and genuinely huge thanks for the, for the book. Like, I mean, oh my God, I, I read it, and for some that would be weird, but I, I actually read it in holidays. And just to be able to relate and to see the strength of you to be able to actually write that and to know I wasn't on my own. And that's what all of us are doing, I think, that are speaking out, okay. is to say, you're not on your own here. It's, yeah. You don't have to do this on your own. And, we, you know, there's different things that work for different people. You know that the support is out there. The worst thing we can do is silence. I do think that's the worst response because that's what they want. That's how they keep that cycle going. And whether you shout it from the rooftops, whether you talk to media, whether you talk to a best friend and allow yourself to heal, I got huge strength and the ability to do that from yourselves. And I want to pass that on to others as well. So thank you as well for the, for the work you do. Because I'm a huge fan. <laughs> and the brown envelope is in the post. <laughs> hey! <laughs> well done, well done. I think for victims, it's important to understand that stage of being angry is vital as well because it, your anger can often get you to, from A to B when you're not even aware that you are angry. The unfairness of the fact that it actually isn't about you, that's very hard yeah. to comprehend when it's your life that's fucked up. It's really hard because I don't want to be defined as that one who was raped. And, and you know, I'm more than that. I'm so much more than that. You know, at the same time, he impacted my life, whether I like it or not, more than any person in my life. Yeah. Um, he impacted it the most. So why should I feel like I need to downplay that? And, and that's what I found hard when I first set to do the victim impact statement. I didn't want to admit that. I didn't want to. I wanted, and I said that at the beginning, I would love to sit here and say you had no impact on my life, mm-hmm. but I'd be lying. Do you know, you impacted it more than absolutely anybody else. You had no right to do that. For people to know that this is us moving on, this is us actually getting over it, that if they had any idea of what it does when you keep it inside, it's not like if you shut your mouth about it, that means it goes away. It doesn't, it yeah. just goes inside. It doesn't. Personally, I feel it does my mental health good, actually yeah. trying, to, trying to help others. Once you realize that you can get to a point where it no longer defines you and you can get to a point in your life where you can put it behind you. And you're just so enthusiastic about helping other people to know that. For in terms of your mental health, you're not dragging it out. You're actually doing something with the gift that you got out of that awful situation. What better thing could you do with your life? You know, the pain is there and that's not going to change. But if we can make something good come out of it, if it helps in a way that somebody hears something and then they go on to recover, fantastic. Because it's such an awful thing. If something good can come out of it, great. And what about the Survivor Support Anonymous? What's happening with that now in this time i started that a year a year and a bit ago so after my own trial i found it really hard not to have the kind of support i know there's counseling but you know there's a lot to be said to sit down with someone who really gets it who knows what you're talking about and and i tried one or two things but i found them triggering so i found that there wasn't a space that was safe enough i suppose for me to sit and talk about my struggle and talk about how to keep myself well without exposing myself to um to other people's memories and things, which sometimes isn't good for us, you know. I had gotten a lot of support from a 12-step program called Grow for people that have depression. But there was parts of it that just didn't suit my needs. Like the, the religion side of it can be very triggering for those that have experienced clerical abuse. And there's a kind of a handing over to higher power. 
And for those of us that's experienced abuse, the last thing we want to be told is to hand over our power. We want to feel empowered and we don't want that taken away. So I looked at some of the humanistic versions in the UK and some of the support groups and basically then set up Survivor Sports Anonymous. So people that have experienced trauma can come together, use the 12 steps that I've adapted um, through other survivor um, support groups, both in the UK and the traditional steps. And some skills that I would have used in DBT and learned in DBT to, so that they can believe in recovery and that they can, in a safe place, sit with other people who have experienced similar things. For some, it's domestic abuse. For others, it's sexual abuse. But like you've said loads of times yourselves, trauma is trauma. And um, a lot of the time, even though we all have different stories, the, the effects can be the same. I suppose learning to to recover um, without under, undermining the effect it has had on us is a tricky one. You know that we're not trying to put ourselves under pressure of just get over it. But at the same time, we are feeling though we're working towards having the best version and healthiest life that we can have. And while I did that, actually, I was really, when I was researching the steps, I also was reading your book, so Why Go Back, like and I found that amazing. Um, I'd reach out to you and stuff, and I, 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 it blew me away, absolutely blew me away. And just even the wording of some of the things was just spot on. So I've put in a, a couple of quotes and obviously said that it's, it's from, from your book and stuff, and I'd recommend anybody to, to read that as well so that we use some of, some of what you say, because the words, as I say, I remember, I think I'm the first step, which is basically about taking away the blame and understanding that it's not your fault. You had said a quote there about the man who has um, no, they have basically created your evil, yet you still want his, want his love and his approval, you know, and, and that's the same for a lot of us. We still had that bond with the person, whether it's a family member or, or not. For me, it wasn't. But And just to know that, you, God, someone gets it. And that's what Survivor Sports Anonymous is all about. And what I got in, in reading that book, you can get from others in, in a support group as well, in a safe place. And what's happening to the group at present? Yeah. To be honest, I was, I was unsure how to do it. Like, we can't meet up at the moment, so the face-to-face -face contact isn't there. I've started to do the steps online so that I'm doing the video of, of what each step is and each skill is. It's not the same because the whole part is so integrated within a support group that everybody plays a part so obviously just me talking isn't is nowhere near the same benefit but i'm looking at zoom my concern with zoom is often you can pick up so much if somebody's in a tough space that sometimes it's harder to do that online so when i do do it i want to do it in such a way that say if somebody needs to leave suddenly that we get some sort of a thumbs up or something that they're actually okay because you just don't know what's going to trigger someone and then they're gone. They're off the, off the computers. And any of the groups that you run, are you present at any of those groups? I used to be there all the time. And then there's two psychotherapists that are in their last stages of their training that come in now. And they're fantastic to be able to kind of teach the steps and support people and do some mindfulness and things like that. For the last number of months, the facilitators has been the girls that, that are the psychotherapists using what I would have put together as a program and then once a month I come along and I join the group and they all have my phone number and stuff as well so so that I'm, I'm kind of in and out and I'm, I don't need to be there every week. Is there a limit to how many can join the group or is there a waiting list or is there any problem with access to it? To be honest like we could have two one day we've had 12 in the group another day 
think people are still afraid. The shackles of shame that we all know too well are still around. And Limerick's a small place, and that's why Zoom might work better in some ways because at least then not everybody's from Limerick. And it is a big step to turn up to a meeting where you don't know who you're going to meet. And everybody in that meeting, once you walk in that room, knows at some stage you were abused, whether that was sexually, whether that was domestically. So it is a huge step. My yeah. concern with running a group like that, the only thing that would immediately throw flags up for me is I, I know even from AA for, for alcoholics, sometimes groups like that, when you have a lot of really damaged people coming together, they actually feed each other's pain as opposed to supporting each other out of it. I would just be concerned that you would really need to get the mix right. And I don't know how you can do that. Yeah, that is a, a problem. And, and I agree with you, uh, Paula. Like that was one of my concerns as well, because like I say, I was part of another 12-step program. And in that, you'd be encouraged to ring each other or ring two people a couple of times a week. And while I understand that because it stops the isolation, what I would find is say if I'm having a week where I would be doing really well, and if I get a few phone calls from people that are really struggling, it'll bring it'll affect my mood automatically, you know. So, but what I've done is I've kind of mixed it in a lot with a good mix between peer support and peer education, so that so that there is a structure in the meetings, recovery based. So everything that we're talking about is a little bit about okay, well, what do you struggle with? But more so, okay, and what are we doing about that? What way could we improve that? What way can we help that? Putting a lot of the focus on the solution, how we can, I suppose look at ourselves with real compassion, be able to, to make what changes we need to make so that we can live the, the kind of the, the best version of ourselves and the healthiest version of ourselves we can. The focus is what can we do in order to have a better week next week? We do have to actively make sure that it's recovery focused at the meetings rather than just our sad stories. You were saying that you tend to stay busy, to dissociate and to function. How are you coping with the isolation and how everything has slowed down for you for your life? I am still keeping myself busy. I find that my routine has gone and not as self-disciplined as I'd like to be. Of three teenagers, they're, they're, they're sick of each other, you know, extra challenges that wouldn't be there. But I've also looked at, okay, well, what can I do that I wouldn't normally have the time to do? What opportunity is this going to give me? And is there, or if there is any. Um, it's usually when the kids aren't here. I'm, I'm grand when I have the kids in front of me. I'm busy and I have enough to keep me going and stuff. But when the kids go to their dad and I'm on my own, I do tend to kind of get, get a little bit more down than I used to, you know. One of the things you mentioned there with the groups would be shame would be stopping people yeah. from coming. And I agree with you wholeheartedly. We have a Facebook page, which is an open page. It's not a closed group. And so we do tend to get very little uh, personal information on it because of that reason people don't really want to be visibly associated with the page so in this time that we are really trying to encourage people have you got any ideas as to how we could encourage people just purely by telling your own story around where you consider your life would be if you hadn't have spoken about the abuse and furthermore tried to deal with it and heal from it feel very very strongly on that I, I do think that silence is what paedophilia depends on and what abuse depends on it depends on silence it depends on us to feel uncomfortable in these conversations and where I don't live in a fantasy land where I think okay talking about sexual abuse is ever going to be a comfortable subject um, let's talk about it anyway because you know for many years we did it the other way where we shut our mouths and we said nothing 
for many, many years. I, I never spoke about it. And we're as sick as our secrets. And I do believe that um, it let me up inside. And when people talk and they do and, and, and they mean well sometimes. I mean, and, you know, my own GP said it recently, you know, someday now you'll be able to move on from all this and it won't be as relevant. And I'm like, no, this is me moving on. I might, and I might be talking about it more openly. And to some people, that's kind of keeping the abuse active as such, or it's keeping the depression active. But what they don't realize is it's inside anyway. It doesn't get to go away. So this is me moving on. This is me actually getting over it, even though to other people on the outside, this is me, you know, so stuck in it. It's been a huge part of my life. And in order to, to heal properly, I mean, although thankfully I did have a, a good prosecution and I had a really good result, I have my own issues with that. He had 15 years anyway. So really, realistically, your man is going to do probably 18 months on top of what he would have done anyway. So I gave up four and a half years um, of my life where I was a very sick woman and a very sick moment in some of those moments. And, and so that sense of unfairness and injustice and stuff, a lot of the time for a lot of us, the, the justice system isn't what's going to give us that, that healing. What gave me the healing is stepping into my power of um, taking those shackles of shame away from my own feet and putting it on his and saying, this isn't my shame. And if my kids got hurt, which they did, he hurt them as well as hurting me because they were secondary victims to what he did to their mom. If it's uncomfortable for people, then that's his doing. Just because I spoke about it, like it's not me that's done that. I mean, these days I'm way more well. And for somebody who felt as though I needed to keep quiet for as long as I kept quiet, if I want to shout it from the rooftops, I'll do so unapologetically now. So I think for me that the sense of shame does lift with your ability to actually be able to speak about it. For some people, the right way to do that is to a really good friend. And it might be just that. They don't need to speak publicly. But do speak about it, you know, because silence is what keeps it going. And in order to break the paedophilia, in order to break um, the sexual abuse, we need to talk about it. And they need to hear us, you know, and they need to, to be afraid that, you know, people are coming forward. Another thing is the events that you organised, the Clothes Don't Rape event and the Red Shoes. Yeah. Do you want to speak yeah. a little about that? That came at the same time as the launch of the Survivors Group. It was around the time of the, the Me Too campaign. and I mean, I was lucky enough that nobody questioned what my underwear was. I think I probably would have had ponies on my underwear, you know. And Clothes Don't Rape, it's not just insulting to the woman. I think we're insulting our men if we make it out as though... Men are so weak that literally the type of underwear you wear will determine whether or not they're capable of, of raping a woman. That's wrong because that's not the case. Rapists are responsible for their behavior. So things like the underwear, things like whether you wore a short skirt and all of that. Like I looked around that exhibition. We had regular clothes. We had school uniforms, layers upon layers upon layers for so many of them. But yes, we did have the short skirt and yes, we did have the lingerie. It was just so irrelevant. And that was the whole point of it, is how irrelevant are these clothes? Why are they allowed to be brought up in cases? That girl that, that died through suicide after her underwear was held up and she had to read out the slogan. But obviously the pain and the shame that came with that, as though you know that was in any way an invitation, is so wrong. It must be very difficult for them because if they leave out all the things we're asking to be left out, like what would they yeah. go with if they can't talk about what you're wearing, the fact you didn't say no? In our case, it was one of the first cases. I actually felt sorry for the people representing my father. They, they couldn't look at anyone. They actually couldn't look at us straight in the face. That's what I was trying to say to the, 
the bar when I when I did talk to them. I said, you have a very flawed system. And I said, and it's broken and it nearly broke me. And I was one of the lucky ones that got a good result, you know. But at the same time, things like the word sex instead of rape, things like, oh, you won't hear that she said no all the time. Like I only said no the first two times. Other than that, I, I didn't say no. Put the blame and the shame where it should be. Stop putting it on the victim. Stop putting it on the clothes. Stop putting it on the choices. Stop putting it on whether they said no enough. Put it on the person who made that choice. So that, that was the point of the exhibition. You can't undo it. People say to me, oh, will I ever live the life that I would have had if I wasn't abused? I don't think any of us can. I stopped reaching for that because in order to reach for that, I had to invalidate my own feelings and the damage that was done. It doesn't mean I can't live the best version of my life, but I can't live the life I would have had. I would, have, I would be a very different person right now. I fought really hard to make sure that no matter what I did for a long time, I said, it's not going to affect my kids. He does not get to affect my kids. And I wasted so much goddamn energy in that fight. I needed to accept he did affect my children because he affected their mum so much rather than denying it's happening. I can put all that effort into healing. It's another yeah. stage of it. I remember at one stage we were writing and I do remember thinking, God, I'll never know the person I could have been. You only feel like that for a while because as you said, you come to terms where you accept it and then you, you actually start thinking, for all I know, I'm a better person now than I would yeah. have been. Who, who knows? Yeah, you have to consider your reaction to such a horrific thing. Because yeah. the easiest thing would be to slit your throat or take an mm. overdose and then it's done. But you didn't. You fought through it and you kept coming back and fighting again and again and again. Like, it would have to be something that horrific that would give you the will and the wherewithal to actually get that kind of energy going. I did try. I tried very bloody hard. <laughs> no, but who's to say the person you are now is not better than the person you could possibly have been if you didn't have that experience? Although I've, I've showed my kids things that were too, that they shouldn't have had to deal with, I've also shown them the, the ability to bounce back. I've also shown them the ability to go from a really, really dark place to a really, really um, good place. I've showed them that you know, no matter how bad it gets, you can turn it around if you're willing to make that effort. And given them that resilience. I think you'll find you've done more good than you realise. Yeah, absolutely. You talk a lot about ignorance doesn't yeah. save anyone. And by not speaking to your own children, regardless of their age, you don't protect them. And yeah. you think of how free they are to even have a conversation with you because you have shared that information now. So now they're free. So it means like with my own children, there's not a goddamn thing that, that we don't discuss in this house. Nothing. Yeah. When you've kind of grown up and you've tried to keep things secret and you see the damage that does, it's like, oh, yeah. lads, take the elephant out in the room, make him a cup of tea, sit him down and talk about him, like, you know, and talk to him. Yeah. And we do that as well. Like, I would be very much like that with my own kids. And I'm very proud of them. It's the same. I, you know, my eldest now would be 19 because of what happened to his mum. He knows yeah. the importance of making sure that a woman has the right to turn around at any point and yeah. say no. Also, they've witnessed you standing up for yourself, no yeah. matter how hard you found it. They have reason to be proud of you too. Like morally, at your core, you're a good person and you're passing all that on inadvertently. You don't even realise. I think it would well offset any damage that might have appeared in your life as a result of the abuse because you are working through it. You haven't stayed in it. Yeah, hopefully. Jesus, we'll go for dinner sometime, June. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, thank you so much. Genuinely, thank, thank you so you. much for having me.
It was an absolute pleasure, Leona. You're just an amazing woman. I just well, hope other victims don't feel they have to do what she did. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> come out, change the law, set up this group, that group. I mean, there's some pressure. So no, <laughs> you don't have to do that. No, just talk to a best friend if it's that. Just, just talk. Just, you know, just say it out loud. Take those shackles of shame away from your own feet because none of us deserve them. Thank you for listening. Hopefully some of the information we've shared will resonate with you and bring you to a place where you can have compassion for yourself. Please know that no matter how you feel or how you respond to the abuse, it was normal. We're hopeful and optimistic that those in a position of power to bring about change will be moved into action so we can finally eradicate childhood sexual abuse. So please spread the word and share the information. The decision to heal from childhood sexual abuse places you on the most important journey of your life. You're in charge of this journey. Only you know what works for you and what doesn't. It takes as long as it takes because there's no rush in it and there's no fake in it. You have to feel it. And just as the ripple of pain that you're in goes out and impacts all of those around you, so does the healing. And the more you heal, the more everyone around you benefits from your healing. You've been listening to the Kavanagh Sisters podcast. You can contact us through Facebook, Twitter and Instagram or email the Kavanagh Sisters at gmail.com.